This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Please to First King, First Kings chapter seventeen. First Kings chapter seventeen. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these, these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed at the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And so she, she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, a little oil in a jar, and see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And just verse 12 again. So she said, As the Lord God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, a little oil in a jar, and see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. I do not know how many times that I have read that portion of scripture over the years, countless times. I have forgotten how many times I have preached a sermon on that particular story. And yet, this week, I discovered something about it that I had never, ever seen before. And that's the wonderful thing about the Bible. There's so much to discover that you've never known before. And it gave me a whole new insight into the story. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. Now, first, here's the way that I always read this. Uh, as far as verse 12 particularly is concerned, this is the way that I read it, and this is the way I preached it. Now, this is the widow of Seraphath, and Elijah is seeking for her because during this time of famine caused by the drought that he called for, he found her gathering sticks to light a fire to bake little cakes of bread so that her and her son would eat it and he would die. And all of that is true for the most part. She had only a handful of meat. She had only a little oil in a cruise. She was literally down to her last bite. And they were going to eat that. And they were going to die of starvation like so many others in Israel was dying at that particular time. 
But here's the thing that I never saw before. In the New King James, which I preach from, it puts it this way. I'm gathering a couple of sticks. The NIV puts it another way. It says, I'm gathering a few sticks. And depending which translation you look at, it's more or less the same as the NIV. Uh, some say I'm gathering, she was gathering, I'm gathering some sticks. But only the authorized version, the old King James, only the authorized version specifically says, I'm gathering two sticks. It's very clear in that. I'm gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Now, you're not going to light much of a fire with two sticks, are you? There's two sticks in the hand. And I don't think it means she was going to rub them together and start a fire. So you're not going to light much of a fire with two sticks. And besides that, actually it doesn't say. She never said she was going to light a fire. That's something that I assumed. That's something that all of us assumed. That's something that almost every commentator ever read assumed, that she was going to light a little fire with her sticks, bake a little bread, and eat it, and die. But it doesn't actually say that. It doesn't say that she was going to light a fire. So what is the significance of her gathering just two sticks? And this is where a Hebrew scholar who often knows stuff that we miss sometimes, he enlightened me greatly on this. But first of all, before I share that with you and explain it, let me back up a little so that you get the context of this because context is very, very important and it's particularly important in this situation. Elijah ministered during the time of the divided kingdom. Now, when King Solomon died, his son Rehoboam, uh, he rose up, but he led the nation in such a way that it divided. And he ended up being the king over the southern part, which was Judah and Benjamin, from then on called Judah. But Jeroboam, he then ended up in the northern part over the ten tribes, the remaining ten tribes, called Israel, or sometimes called Ephraim, because Ephraim is the largest, most influential tribe in the ten northern tribes. And so from about 733 B.C., 11 years to 722 B.C., uh, the ten northern tribes, which was now called Israel, became a, a vassal state of their mighty neighbors, Assyria, Assyria was a mighty, warring nation. And, and I mean, they could just take over whoever they wanted, whenever they wanted. But for a period of about 11 years to 722 BC, uh, the 10 northern tribes became like a vassal state. And what I mean by that is they became subject to them and paid tribute to them and was greatly influenced by them because they knew that at any moment they could invade them. And in fact, in 722, that's exactly what they did. After 11 years, they came in and they invaded the northern states and the northern tribes. The state of Israel then, there were tens of thousands <coughs> slaughtered, taken away into exile, taken captive, and so forth. And Israel then became scattered. And only Judah in the south 
remained for a while. In fact, it would be over 100 years before the Babylonians in 606 BC till they come in and they invaded the southern two tribes, Judah. And again, they slaughtered thousands and they took tens of thousands of slaves as captives to Babylon and there they were for about 70 years. In fact, whenever they invaded uh, the southern part, Judah, uh, after 20 years, then they completely and utterly destroyed the temple that was there. And so all the kings of the northern tribes were wicked and evil kings. And only a few of the southern kings and Judah were actually good and godly. So this was a very long, dark period in the nation's history. And idolatry really was their downfall. Because one of the things the Syrians would do whenever they would take over anywhere is they would introduce, when they take slaves away, they would enter just because there was a remnant left, they would enter just other nations, other foreigners with their gods to mix and intermingle with the remnant that remained. And after a while they would intermarry and then the, the, the Israelites would begin to worship these other gods. So idolatry became a big, big thing in the nation. And so, by the way, that's, that's how the Samaritans came about. Uh, because you remember... The, uh, Samaria became their center of worship. You remember Jesus talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and they get into this theological debate, didn't they? And she says, well, we, we worship at this mountain, meaning Gerizim, but you Jews, you worship at Jerusalem. And Jesus says, the woman, the time is coming when those will worship in spirit and the truth. Not at this mountain or not there, but in spirit and the truth. And so the Jews hated the Samaritans and they hated them because they treated them as half-breeds. That's what they would call them. Uh, and and they were, there was a syncretism of religion now because they, they had the Hebrew worship and the pagan worship and they joined the two together. And it was awful. It was an abomination in God's sight. And that's why the Jews then, even to Jesus' day, uh, really did not want anything to do with them. Now let me back up a little bit. Go back to Jeroboam in the north. He didn't want any of those in the north going to the temple in Jerusalem in the south to worship three times a year as they'd be required to do. So what did he do? He set up two golden calves, one away up north in Dan to worship and one away down south in Bethel to worship. Everything to try to get God's people not to go to the real truth and place of worship, which was the temple, to worship the true and living God. And that worked for a long time because then they, they just wouldn't go. And so this was the climate in which Elijah began to minister. And although God was very faithful to send prophets all along the way to warn them of their impending captivities, if they would not repent, but they would listen. And of course then Israel went into captivity, and then eventually Judah went into captivity also. And so there was a few revivals in Judah. Uh, some good come out of that, but they fizzled out after a while. So in 1 Kings 17, uh, Elijah, under the instruction of God, called for a drought, <coughs> a drought in the land. And he said, there will be no rain until my word. In other words, I'm calling this drought, and it will last until I say so. And in fact, 
you know what happens when there's a long drought, then there's a famine, of course, and then there's deaths because of that and disease and all the rest of it. But that's what it was called for because they would not repent. They had not learned any lessons. And so that's what he called for. Now, when Elijah began to minister, then Ahab and Jezebel, king and queen of Israel, were the, were the, they introduced the most vile worship to their gods imaginable. I don't even want to speak about it. It was, so, it was unspeakable. It was terrible. In fact, the Bible says about Ahab that no king in Israel had provoked God more than King Ahab. So he was the worst of the worst. I mean, he was just the worst of all. And so that's the climate, and that's the king and the queen that Elijah then began to minister at that particular time. And so, although those from the northern kingdom could not go to Judah and Jerusalem to worship, uh, there were some uh, who stayed true and faithful even in the north. There were some that the Bible says to Elijah at one time, 7,000 that hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. And I believe this widow and her son was two of those 7,000 that remain faithful and true in spite of all. Now, this Hebrew scholar said, here is the significance of the two sticks. Not for lighting a fire, but for something else. Those who wanted to remain faithful, those who still wanted to worship the true and living God, would often imitate or emulate worship that had been in the temple, that they remembered in the temple. So, the two sticks, what she would be doing with the two sticks was not lighting a fire, but actually making something. And here's one I made earlier. All right. He said that she would get the two sticks and she would tie a piece of cloth between the two sticks. She would bake her little bread loaves. She'd put them on this little kind of stretcher and then she would take them and she would put them on an altar and there she would worship at the altar. Having worshipped at the altar, then when that was finished, then her and her son would take the two little loaves and eat them, and then they would go away to die. After they had eaten them, there was absolutely nothing left. That was it. Now, let me just take you back to these pieces of bread. Imitating something in the temple. In the temple and the tabernacle before the temple, there was the holy place and the most holy place. The holy place was separated from the most holy place with a thick curtain. But whenever the priests would walk into the first compartment, the holy place, the first thing they would see right in front of them would be the golden altar of incense. And on their left would be the seven-branch candlestick, which would be lit all, at all times, 24-7. And then to their right would be the table of showbread. 
And on the table of showbread will be 12 loaves. And on the loaves will be frank, uh, sprinkled with frankincense. And these 12 loaves are the table of showbread, often will be called, called the, the bread of faces or the bread of presence. And these represented the 12 tribes of Israel in the presence <laughs> of God in the holy place and God's face looking down on them. So this woman and her son would take these two pieces of bread to a little altar, offer them up as an act of worship unto God, believing that God was looking down upon them as they would do that in honor of him, that he would be pleased that they worshipped him in that way. Now here's the point that I want to make. The widow and her son were literally about to eat their last meal. She had nothing left. There was nothing more she could do. And even though she was truly godly, and she was, and even though her and her son did not worship other gods like many around her, that she remained true, yet, in spite of that, her and her son were starving to death just like everybody else around them. So she could have said, what is the point of me being faithful to God? What has God done for me? We're no better off than anybody else. Everybody's starving, including us. We're about to die like others. And yet we're godly and we've been faithful. We haven't worshipped other gods. She could have said, there is no God. And even if there is a God, he certainly doesn't care about me and my son because we're about to die. She could have said that. But she didn't. She could have been like those in Malachi. If I could just read you just a, a little bit about the ones in Malachi's day, which is the last book of the Old Testament in chapter 1. God says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And then verse 6, he says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If, I, if then I am your father, where is my honor? If I am your master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you priests who despise my name, yet you say, In what way have we despised your name? You have offered me defiled foot on my altar. But say, In what way have we defied you? By saying, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you, when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor, would it be pleased with it? You come with your offering and you give me the worst possible offering you can give me, try that with your boss, see how he would like it. Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will accept an offering from your hands, from the rising of the sun even to its going down. My name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place increase shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the Gentiles, says the Lord of hosts. And in chapter 3, verse 13, Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say... What have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? 
So now we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt, they even tempt God and go free. So that was their attitude. God, you have done nothing for us. You're horrible. Why should we serve you? Sure, we bring our offering, but we just bring the least we can give you. That's all you deserve. That was their attitude. That was the priest, by the way. <coughs> Never mind the ordinary people. That was the leader saying this. No wonder God was angry. But they weren't all like that. Because Malachi 3.16, then those who feared the Lord spoke one to another. And the Lord listened and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and who meditated on his name. God always has a remnant. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves them. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Huh. These people in Malachi had quickly forgotten just how much God had actually done for them. See, God under Cyrus, a Persian king, had allowed them to come out of 70 long years of captivity in Babylon. And he had restored their worship again under Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, he had allowed them to rebuild the temple even though it wasn't as glorious as Solomon's. But he allowed them to have temple worship again. And you'll think for that they would be grateful, but they weren't. They were griping and complaining and grumbling and not treating God the way he should have been treated. And the priests were completely backslidden. They'd gotten so far from God that they hadn't even recognized what they were saying was an affront to God. Those who love God but only in the good times when all our needs are being met. But as soon as anything goes wrong or a prayer seems to be going unanswered, then they think, it's a waste of time to serve God. And they backslid and they're gone, back into the world again. David's worship leader in Psalm 73, Asaph, he got into that way of thinking for a while. But thank God he got his thinking straightened out in the end. But this widow woman, she was cut from a different cloth. She wasn't in the habit of blaming God when things went wrong. In fact, the very last thing she did before she was about to die was to worship God. No complaining, no saying, God, why did you let me get into this mess? No saying, God, where are you? You've deserted me. None of that. Just worshiping God with her last breath and her last bite. She was offering up, in a sense, to God. What an attitude. When she had nothing, she still worshiped God. When there was no sign of help on the horizon whatsoever, as far as she knew, she still worshiped God. Well, it looked like she was just as badly off as everybody else around her, all those pagans around her. She still worshipped God. When all her prayers seemed to go unanswered, she still worshipped God. She still gathered her two sticks and her two little loaves, and she went to her altar, and she offered it unto God. 
Habakkuk says, although the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, although the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. When things is as bad as they possibly can be, I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me to walk on my high hills. What a different attitude, amen? Mm -hmm. I, I love these three Hebrew boys in Daniel 3. I love their attitude. In Daniel 3, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. Despots and tyrants always have made great images of themselves. The Kimmel Sung Dynasty in Korea is a classic example. Everywhere you go, there's massive golden statues of the great leader. Saddam Hussein in Iraq was the same. Everywhere you went in Iraq, massive statues of the great leader. Stalin, Lenin, all of them. Notice the height, 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, 6, 6, Seven's the perfect number in Scripture. Man's number is six. He was made on the sixth day. He just falls short. In Revelation 13, when the Antichrist comes, one of the things that's going to happen, there's going to be a great image made of him. The man whose number is 666. And the whole world is going to be made to worship it. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Somewhere on its own, where it could be special and seen. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And he stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, and the flute, and the harp, and the lyre, and the psaltery, and symphony, with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people and nations and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Ah, and who would dare not to? They made it very clear this was a life or death. <coughs> that was the only choice, the only option. Bow down or die. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward 
and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn and the flute and the harp and the lyre and the psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three who were captives had risen to the place where they were high civil servants of the king, had great control over provinces, and they weren't liked. And here was an opportunity for those who hated them to get them because of their worship, because they couldn't get them any other way. So they said, O king, they have not paid due regard to you, they do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and fury, he obviously hadn't been to the temper management course, sure he hadn't, to the rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up. Is that true? Well, was I hearing right? You can almost feel the sarcasm. You actually decided that you wouldn't do this? Everybody else is doing it but you? And then he gives them a bit of a carrot here. He says, now if you're ready at that time to hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the harp and the lyre and the psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down, or you, you fall down. Worship the image which I have made good. And there's the carrot, but here's the big stick. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Ah, give the devil enough rope and he'll hang himself. Listen to what he says. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? <laughs> I could imagine God saying, oh, really? <laughs> really? Am I, am I hearing? Did you actually say that? <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we, we don't have to have a meeting about this. We, we don't even have to go away and talk about this. We know what to do. Our minds are already made up. We have no need to answer you in this matter. They could have said, you know, we have read the Ten Commandments. We know them off by heart. We know that the First and Second Commandment says that you shall have no other gods than me. We know that it says you shall not bow down to any graven image of anything. Here's what it says. But if that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Boy, that took some bravery, didn't it? I mean, that took guts. When there will be thousands on the plain of Dura, all bound down prostrate before this great golden idol, 
only three are the end up right. That takes some courage not to compromise, doesn't it? And you think it's hard in your office or your factory floor? These were just young men too. But here's the three words. But if not. But if not. Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. We are fully confident that God will deliver us. But if for some reason or other that we don't understand or we don't know, if not, we are still not going to bow down to your idol. It's easy serving God in the good times, isn't it? When everything's going well and all your prayers are being answered, there's no pressure, you've got money in the bank, it's coming in, your health is tip-top shape, everything's well, relationship with your wife's brilliant, everything's going great, it's easy. But when everything is collapsing around you, could we say, but if not, if that prayer does not get answered, if that does not happen, but if not, we will not compromise God's word because the commandments was God's word to them and they were not going to compromise one of his commandments for any king or anybody you know the rest of that story and how that the furnace was heated seven times more than it was wont to be heated and those who threw them in died because of the fire was so great they were burned alive and they went in and Nebuchadnezzar was right there watching he saw it with his own eyes because he was in a rage and a fury. But then he looked. He says to his officials, did we not just put three men in there? Yes, King, we did. But look, he says, I see four walking around. And one of them is like the form of the Son of God. Now, it probably says in the original, like a son of the gods. But either way, he knew it wasn't a human being in there. Well, those three, it was something else. And it was. This was a, a theophany. This was a, an Old Testament appearance of Christ himself in there with them. And they came out of that, and there wasn't even a smell of smoke on them. Their beards wasn't even singed. Their turbans, their clothes, that they threw them in. The only thing that was burned was the ropes that bound them. Hmm. But if not, the widow with the two sticks, she didn't know that help was at hand. She didn't know her miracle was just about to happen. She didn't even know it was staring her right in the face. All she knew was she was going to take those two little loaves, offer them at her altar unto God, and eat them and die. That's all she knew. But we know different, don't we? Because we read the story. And what a story it is as we finish. Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterwards, make some for yourself and your son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, 
and the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. And so he went away, and she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Do you see how when I read what that Hebrew scholar said, how differently that makes that story? It just adds a whole new dimension, doesn't it? It gives it a little insight in the heart of this precious woman. That even though she had nothing, she was going to worship God with the little she had and be content. Even if it meant her lying down and dying. And even though those young men faced a fiery furnace, and even though they says, but if not, we shall not bow down and worship. Would that be our heart today? Maybe we're not in that place. Maybe we're not down to our last. Maybe everything's not collapsing around us. But if it was, and I know that some of you have been in that fiery furnace. I know that some of you have been down to your last. I know that some of you, everything collapsed around you. But you still worship God. And he still says, but if not. And that's the reason why you're here today. Because you kept on worshiping and following the true God in spite of everything. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, where else can we go for you alone have the words of eternal life? Lord, there is nothing in this world that can compare with you. There's nothing in this world, Lord, that will get us through this life except you. So, Lord, we have no desire to go back. We have no desire to compromise. We want to be faithful and true, even right to the end, like this little widow woman, like the three Hebrew boys. We don't want to grumble and complain like those in Malachi. Lord, we don't want to gripe a Jew. How could we? Because of all that you've done for us already. You sent your son to die for us. What more could you do? And so, Lord, if you never did another thing, we could praise you for all time and eternity for what has already been done for us. So we rejoice in your goodness. And we give you thanks for every blessing. We thank you that you have met our need. We thank you that you have answered our prayers. We thank you that you do look out for us every single moment of every day. But if not, we're still going to follow. We say like Job says, Though God slay me, yet I will trust him. I shall then come forth as gold. So we bless you and we give you thanks.
thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.